That is my wife. Just can't help myself. <laughs> just in case you're new and you didn't know, didn't want to surprise you. Um, as she was praying, it brought something to mind. Um, as I was actually preparing this message several days ago, the news report started coming in to the office. We started having discussions about another mass shooting, this time uh, in northwest, uh, northwest of Fort Lauderdale in Florida. Seventeen kids dead, it's kids and teachers, worse than Columbine, making it the worst high school shooting on record. And that doesn't even include the dozens of injuries that were there as well. And this is on the heels of three of the five deadliest mass shootings in modern American history, all happening in the last year and a half. Our heart break, our hearts break for our nation and for their children and for the loss that continues to happen month after month by these senseless shootings. And there's an outcry in our nation that something be done about the mental health laws or the gun laws, whatever needs to be changed to get something to happen in our nation. And I just want to encourage you to join me over the next several days in prayer for our nation's leaders as they hopefully do something to get their hands around this situation. Every time these things happen, we say we're going to do something and nothing happens. And I believe as a body of Christ, we can come together and pray for our legislators and write our legislators and ask them, demand they do something about this problem. Some of the latest research that I have been seeing says that most of those who commit mass murder uh, have, were experiencing a period of decline for a year or more and that they had at least one major mental disorder. Family members, classmates, co-workers usually recognize a problem long before something tragic actually happens. But studies find that people don't get involved. It's easy to ignore the problem and hope someone else will do something. In the case of this situation in Florida, it was obvious to everyone around him that something was wrong. And a couple people did call authorities, but despite a history of mental illness, both parents dying, troublesome social media posts, and several people saying that one day this kid was going to erupt, apparently no one ever took the time to really enter in to his life. It was easier to ignore him, to just say that he was weird, to avoid conflict and pretend everything was okay when it was not okay. Avoiding conflict is a natural tendency that I think most people have. We don't like conflict, right? Yet avoiding it never makes it better, does it? In the workplace, research shows that 95% of a typical company's employees tend to avoid conflict rather than address it. 95%. There's a 2010 study that said that the average American spends about, uh, the average American worker spends about three hours a week just dealing with unresolved conflict in the workplace. And it costs America about $359 billion a year. And that doesn't even include the 25% of employees who they say avoid conflict sometimes by taking sick days or vacation days to avoid the situations. A Harvard Business Review article says that in an effort to spare people's feelings, we capitulate. We give confusing and vague feedback. And listen to this. We lose the insights and the breakthroughs that often emerge from disagreement. 
Avoiding conflict is a pattern that can span other areas of our lives too. With our family, our neighbors, our church relationships. When we don't address concerns, over time we get more conflicted, hurt, and even resentful. And relationships become less and less authentic. At the core, avoiding conflict is really a trait of an inauthentic life. As someone who would rather pretend to be nice than to get into the mess of a disagreement or a hurt to bring about change. And the problem just grows and grows. Through this series, we've been challenging ourselves to take a hard look at those places in our lives where we're not very sincere or authentic. And as we've been talking about through this series, that whole process starts with our relationship with God. If we're not real with God, if we're not real with ourselves, we can't possibly be real and sincere and authentic with those who are around us. It starts with us and our relationship with God and listening to God speak into our hearts and lives. And then in week two, we saw that that also means that we have to take the masks off. Right? We have to get to a point where we're okay allowing people to see the real us and not the projection of us we want them to see. Last week, Tim did a great job of talking about how um, authenticity looks like not trying to please others all the time. And with all of these insights, we can address the hardest part of being real. And that is authenticity in times of conflict with other people. There was a uh, web conference that I was on just a, a, few, a couple months ago with one of the leaders in our denomination. And she's actually known as the director of ministerial health for our region, which I didn't know that was a thing. But it is. There's a director of ministerial health. And you know what, her, what the biggest part of her job is? She said, helping pastors and churches navigate through congregational conflict. She said, some of the things she shared with me just totally blessed me. She said, conflict is one of the best tools of discipleship in the church today. Did you hear that? Conflict is one of the best tools that we have to grow people in their faith of anything that we have today, she said. And that's because she said, most people grow up never really learning how to address conflict in their lives. She said, schools don't address it. Churches don't oftentimes address it. She said the only example that most people have is they're growing up are their parents. Parents are our role models. And if they don't model it well, then we're just bound to handle it poorly or not handle it at all. Think about it. Who taught you in your life what it means to deal with conflict? Who was it in your life that was that example for you? Has it worked? Has it served you well or does it ever make problems worse? Did you know that Jesus actually saw this tendency in people 2,000 years ago and intentionally decided to address this issue and provide a standard that we can go by right in the middle of Scripture? I encourage you to turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at this passage, just really digging into it in depth and seeing what Jesus had to share with us this morning. Here's what we're going to see today, that Christ calls us to address our grievances quickly, clearly, and directly, motivated by love, humility, and a desire to win people over. I'm going to share that again. 
Christ calls us, each one of us, to address our grievances, our problems, our hurts quickly, clearly, and directly. Motivated by humility, but also by love and a desire to win our brother or sister over. So let's look at Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to follow along with me. Or if you don't have your paper Bibles with you, go to mygrace.church in your web browser. And you can click on the sermon notes there and follow along there uh, as I read the scripture this morning. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, if another believer uh, sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, take that person or treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. And then Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. We'll, we'll explain that in just a minute. And in verse 19 it says, I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything that you ask... My Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. And I love in verse 21, Peter just kind of interrupts Jesus and says, uh, Lord, how should I forgive someone who sins against me? How often? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Here, Jesus is speaking about handling conflict in three ways. Three things I want to unpack for you this morning. Jesus says here. He says we're to handle conflict, problems, disagreements with prayer, number one. Number two, we're to handle them in person. And number three, we're to handle them through forgiveness. Prayer, in person, and with forgiveness. Let's unpack those for a minute. And I'm not going to take these in the order that Jesus happened to speak them that day, but in the order that makes sense. The order in which he, was, he would have said to us is the way we would address things. The first one that we tackle, when we have a problem, when we have a disagreement, when we have a grievance with someone, when we have a hurt, is that we're to handle it in prayer. Right in the middle of this conversation Jesus is having about conflict, he reminds us of this. He tells us to pray with faith, believing that if we ask anything according to God's will, what does it say? He might answer? No. It says he will answer. So oftentimes I see that people tend to avoid conflict because deep down they assume that it won't go well. They assume that somehow God won't get involved and it's all up to us. And that pressure prevents us from dealing with the situation. But Jesus is actually talking here about binding and loosing, which is not coincidental. Other parts of the Bible mention that in moments of conflict, there are evil forces at work trying to manipulate situations, trying to accentuate hurt, trying to bring more offense, and trying to destroy relationships. And these are things that we are to pray for God to bind or loose in order to prevent them, before we even go into a situation to confront it. As we pray, though, 
I believe we're to take a hard look at ourselves as well. Sometimes when we pray, I know this is true of me, we realize that it's okay sometimes to, and even wise, to overlook an offense. With any conflict, we shouldn't avoid it. But we also shouldn't jump into it prematurely. And there's a difference, which I don't want us to confuse, between overlooking an offense and avoiding an offense. They're, they're very, very different. In the book of Proverbs, it says, A person with good sense is patient, and it's to his credit that he overlooks an offense. There's another translation of this scripture that says this. It says, If you're sensible, you'll control your temper. When someone wrongs you, it is a great value to ignore it. Now, please hear me. This scripture is not giving us a license to avoid conflict. (laughs) It is not. It's simply reminding us to slow down, to go to God first, and to determine if this is something that God wants to deal with you about in your heart, or if he wants to deal through you with someone else about Now, there are two simple ways that I believe we can have wisdom in trying to discern if if an offense is something we should overlook or not. Two, Two things. Number one, ask God in that situation as you're feeling that tension, that frustration. Ask God, God, are you convicting me of anything here in this situation? And if so, allow God to deal with you and your heart first. And then after you've done that, consider if you can overlook the offense. Is it something that you can easily let go of after you've dealt with God on it? Or is it affecting you? Is it causing you to be frustrated still? Or to be be bitter or resentful at all toward that person? Is your relationship with that person, your trust, affected at all? If so, it isn't wise and it isn't virtuous that you overlook that offense. Because that leads to an inauthentic relationship. In those situations, Jesus prompts us to take the next step, which is in verse 15. It's that Jesus says, you're to go to that person privately and you're to address that offense. You're not to go to all of your, all of your friends and to talk to them about the problem for support. You're not to write a letter or an email or a text. Jesus says, go to the person. Now, in this translation, it's the New Living Translation that I read from, it actually says if another believer sins against you. Did you notice that? Now, I'm not sure. I usually like the New Living Translation. That's usually the, the easiest, best translation that I have found to, to teach from. I don't know why in the world the editors of this translation inserted the word believer here. Because it's not in the original. In fact, in the footnote of my New Living Translation Bible, it actually says that it was added in. And in other English translations, you won't see that word. In the original language, Jesus says, Jesus says, if another brother wrongs you. Now, let me just clarify here for those of you who want to avoid conflict. That doesn't mean you only confront your male siblings. And it doesn't mean you only confront guys. Women, you get a piece of this as well. It means when Jesus uses that word brother, he's basically saying, if it's someone you know, if it's someone you actually have a relationship with, there's a book that I read recently about authenticity, and it was, called the, it was called Be Real. And I love how they unpack in one particular chapter three different types of relationships that I think can inform what we're seeing, at, seeing here. 
This book, it talks about crowds, companions, and confidants. Let me give you the, the difference here. Crowds are people that you don't have relationship with. With these people, you don't typically address grievances with them unless there's something going on that, where there, there's a risk of their, them endangering someone. Then you would address it. But instead, this is a the situation where Jesus encourages us to turn the other cheek. We do that with the crowds. For example... If someone cuts you off on the freeway, it's not wise to chase them down to point out their offense. Right? Please. Yes. Say yes. Okay. You're worrying me there. But when it comes to companions and confidants, these are the people Jesus is saying you engage, you, you address issues with. Companions are people that you have some sort of a relationship with, but you may not have full trust with. And you, you still, even though you may not have full trust, you have a relationship there and you address the grievance if it needs to be addressed. And then there are the confidants, which are your friends, your, your close circle. And with those people, you don't not only point out offenses that you have with them, but it, this book was pointing out, you even at times point out to them problems that they're having with other people and other relationships where they're struggling because of your friendship and out of your love and care for them, you address situations even if you're not directly involved. Now, what is the motivation for all this conflict? Notice what Jesus says here. He says, we do this to point out the offense, but also, it says, to win that person back. It isn't to get angry at the person or to shame them. Galatians 6 says, we're to approach each one of these things with gentleness and humility. And the goal of all biblical confrontation, and I actually put this in your sermon notes this morning. The goal of all biblical confrontation, I, I would sum up in three words. Reconciliation, restitution, and restoration. Reconciliation, restitution, restoration. Reconciliation means restoring, repairing that relationship that was damaged by the offense. That's the first thing we need to do in confrontation. The second thing is restitution. In other words, if someone has wronged another person, to help point out to that offender how to make it right. Not just to say, sorry, my bad, but how can they make it right? That's restitution. And restoration, sometimes restoration needs to happen because the hurt, the damage, the pain has been so severe that uh, trust has been broken. And you don't just instantly patch that and make everything okay. Restoration is a process that begins with addressing an offense. It's like when you, when you restore a piece of furniture, right? When you restore a piece of furniture, you don't just toss it away and buy something else that's new, although that might be easier. You get involved. You make time to help make that chair or that relationship what it was meant to be all along. And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, you're not done there. He says, then you take one or two people with you and you go do it again. You approach it again. Jesus is saying here, we don't just let it go. We don't shove it under the rug because it's easier that way. We perhaps at that point find a mutual friend to come along and help work through the situation. Someone who has the best interests of all that are involved. Now this practice that you see here that Jesus is mentioning, it's actually found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. It goes all the way back to then. And it wasn't this practice of bringing someone with you to, 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 uh, to uh, confront someone. It wasn't meant to be done to gang up on another person or to coerce them to do what you want. 
It's actually an aid in reconciliation to help approach something in a God-honoring way. Sometimes you get in a conflict with someone and you just can't seem to find a place of agreement. But by bringing someone else along who has both of your interests in mind, they can help see perhaps what God is saying in a non-biased way. And if that doesn't work, Jesus says you're still not done. If, that, if both of you are in the same church community together, Jesus says grab a leader of the church to come with you at that point. Someone with wisdom and can use their position of trust to help navigate to the root of the problem and help resolve it. Jesus says only after all of these attempts have been unsuccessful do you then choose to approach that person differently. Only then. Only then are you to lower your expectations of that person and treat them like a non-believer. And even then, it isn't, we're not to see those, that, that person as an outcast or hopeless. God never puts limits on human forgiveness. It's just in those moments, if you've tried all three of these things, you choose to release, to give space for God to work in that situation. I have to tell you, in my 20 plus years of ministry, the number of times I have seen people walk through all three of these steps is rare. It's so much easier to wear the mask, isn't it? To put up the walls or to avoid the person and relationships suffer. Jesus calls us to address our grievances directly, clearly, and quickly. And to be motivated by humility and love and a desire to win that person over. To, to go through and to stick with the process as uncomfortable as it might be. Because conflict is one of the best ways we all have to grow in godliness. To grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, right? Gentleness, self-control, and, well, love. Let me also speak to you this morning. If you're in a situation where someone has cut you off and that relationship has just been broken and the other party just has no interest in trying to do anything about it, I want to encourage you to keep praying and to not give up on what God can do. I have seen situations in my family where conflicts have been broken and unresolved for years and then through prayer God brings a reconciliation that we never saw coming and the relationship came away stronger than it was before before the conflict first happened God can do that and he will do that if we are faithful to pray finally Jesus says here that we're to handle it with forgiveness right Peter is here listening to Jesus talk about this process and no doubt he's thinking come on Jesus that's a lot of work right enough is enough can't I just write him off and so he flat out asked Jesus he said Jesus, how many times do I have to go through this process? This is really, this is really time consuming. This is really painful. Can't we just like put a number on it? Like after so many times of dealing with a person like this, can't we just say, okay, done that now. I'm done with them. And so he throws out a number, seven. That's the number of completion back then in Jewish, uh, Jewish law. So it's like, what if I just do it seven times? Then I could be done with that person. Just write them off, right? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, right? In other words, we're to forgive on an unlimited basis. Now, let me clarify. That does not mean that we trust someone on an unlimited basis. 
In cases of violence and abuse, that especially applies. But even then, even in those situations, we are to forgive. There is, there is so much here, guys, in this passage. There is so much. I, one of these days, I want to do a whole series on what it means to navigate through conflict well. Because I believe so many of us in our culture today, we don't know how to address conflict well and we run from it. We live in places of inauthenticity here more than anywhere else. But I want to close with this story. A few months ago, one of our elders here at Grace wasn't happy with one of the ways we were doing things here at Grace. And it had to do with family Sundays. These, uh, these uh, Sundays that we have uh, a few times a year, four or five times a year when we have a fifth Sunday. This family Sunday concept developed a few years ago at Grace when we came together as a ministry staff at Grace. And we had read the research and we realized that for children to grow into students and students to grow into adulthood, we have to create spaces where they're not just in children's ministry or student ministry, which is a great place for them to grow and to engage in God's world on a Sunday morning. But there have to be these touch points along the way where they are involved in community. The greater community where they're here with us and they're worshiping and they're learning alongside us big people. And they're being challenged to grow. And the older a kid gets, the more and more important it is that they're involved in Sunday morning worship on a regular basis so that cross-generational ministry happens. And so these fifth Sundays have been a time for us when we've just had these family Sundays and we cancel children's ministry and student ministry on Sunday mornings and we're all worshiping together and learning together. But they've not been, they've been good experiences, but there have been some ways that we could improve those as a staff. And we just kind of put it on a shelf. And this elder had come to me and said, you know what, I just, my first thought about this was just to say, you know what, this just isn't working for us. We're just going to go do something else those Sundays every year. We'll just, we'll find something else to do. And she said, Dave, God confronted me that I was living in a place of inauthenticity. Because I wasn't addressing something in my church that felt like God was calling me to address. So she talked with me about it and then that led to a conversation with our entire staff. And then we brought some other families involved in this conversation as well. And it's caused us as a staff to dig into this and to figure out how do we do ministry with children, students and adults even better than we've ever done them before. And we're right now in the process of doing some significant revamps of how we do ministry that we'll be rolling out in 2018. And that all started with one person's conversation. One person who chose to not be inauthentic, to not wear the mask, to not do what was going to be easy to avoid conflict. But instead to address something that she felt like God was stirring in her heart. I say all that to say to you this morning this. Is there someone in your life that you're not being real with? Is there a conversation that you've been avoiding? That you've been downplaying or minimizing? And you've been telling yourself you don't need to address it. If you're still thinking about what happened, that's likely the clue to you that you need to have the conversation. So what are you waiting for? Pray up, ask God to prepare you, to prepare your heart so that you can go quickly, clearly, and directly. Motivated not to shame or anger someone, but out of love and humility and a desire to win that person over. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity this morning as we wrap up this series on authenticity to deal with the toughest issue of all when it comes to authenticity. And that is being authentic in times of conflict. God, none of us like conflict, really. If we do, we've got other issues to deal with. (laughs) But Lord, even though our tendency so oftentimes is to run from it, to avoid it, to push it away, to minimize it. Lord, I, I pray with each one of us, Lord, that you would show us those situations with our spouses, our family members, our kids, our parents, our co-workers, our friends at school. Lord, all of these relationships, our neighbors even, these relationships that somehow are strained or broken and there's a, there's a situation there that we're not addressing. Or perhaps there's a situation that we know that they want to address and they're not addressing it and we're pretending everything's okay too. God, give us the courage to pray it through and to go to that person and to trust that you can work through it. Help us, Lord, even in our inadequacy and our fear of failure, to trust that you have a bigger plan involved and that you can use these dark, difficult moments sometimes in our lives to cause us to grow and to, and to work through things, to see things in a new perspective, to have a strong relationship with someone that we've ever had before. God, we thank you for this example, this example that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago and how to navigate through conflict well in a God-honoring way. And God, I just pray for each person in this room, each person who has struggled or is struggling with a relationship. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enter into those situations, that you would help navigate to a place of healing and reconciliation and restitution and and restoration. And if you're here this morning, And you're hearing all this stuff about conflict. And perhaps as you're hearing it, you're starting to recognize that there maybe are not only relationships in your own life that are broken, but perhaps even your relationship with God has been broken in some way. Perhaps through a sin that you've committed or perhaps through just a difficulty getting your head around this idea of, of knowing this God that you can't see. And that relation, you've thought about having a relationship with God, but it's just never been there. I want to encourage you this morning that that relationship has been broken because of sin and needs to be reconciled. As you confess your sins to God, as you open your heart up to God and you trust Him, God says He opens up His heart, He opens up our hearts and lives to Him and we can engage Him in a new and a real way. So if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to just pray with me in the silence of your heart. Heavenly Father, I I come to you today and I confess that I I need you in my life and I I want you in my life. God, for whatever reasons, in my past, there are things that must be there that have caused a a brokenness in our relationship. And God, sometimes I even wonder if you're even there, if you even exist. Lord, I, I recognize today that it's my own brokenness that's broken that relationship, even though I didn't realize it. And God, I ask that you would restore what has been broken. Restore the years that have been lost. 
God, I pray that you would help me today as I confess that you are my Savior and my Lord. I confess my sins to you, God. I ask that you would come in and fill me with your Holy Spirit as I confess that you are my Savior and Lord. And God, I ask that in these moments you would help me to see you for who you truly are, not who other people say you are. God, I ask that I could, in these moments, sense you and know you and begin a relationship with you like I've never had before. That I would perhaps become the man or woman of God that you've called me to be long, long ago. In Jesus' name, amen.